This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Good day, listeners, and welcome to the person behind the resume on The Law School Show. My name is Amos Vang. And my name is Ryan Pistorius. And we will be your hosts for this episode. Now, you've probably seen from the episode title, Seven Degrees, Six Books, Five Professorships, Four Kids, Three Jobs, Two Sides, One Ace Attorney. Today, we have the privilege of having Dr. Rebecca Jaremko Bromwich here today on the show. Seven degrees. Dr. Bromwich holds a Bachelor of Social and Cultural Anthropology from the University of Calgary. She also holds an LLB and an LLM from Queen's University, a PhD in Legal Studies from Carleton University, in which she graduated as a Senate Medalist, a certificate from the Program on Negotiation Masterclass at Harvard University, and a certificate in mediation from the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School. Six books. Dr. Bromwich has co-authored and co-edited six books to date, including just recently last night she launched her most recent book, Mothers, Mothering, and Sport, Experiences, Representation, Resistances. Five professorships. Dr. Bromwich has taught at five post-secondary institutions, the University of Western Ontario Faculty of Law, University of Cincinnati, Fanshawe College, Carleton University, and the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. Four kids, well, this is pretty self-explanatory. Dr. Bromwich is the proud mother of four kids, the eldest of whom is in her first year of high school. Three jobs, Dr. Bromwich has been a criminal defense lawyer, and she is currently a per diem crown attorney with the Ministry of the Attorney General in Ottawa and Program Director for the Graduate Diploma in Conflict Resolution Program at Carleton University. Two sides. Dr. Bromwich has sat on both the criminal defense and currently the crown prosecution. All of this in one ace attorney. Professor, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So my first question is... With such an incredible list of experiences, how are you able to manage everything that you currently do in a timely manner and in an organized schedule without being overwhelmed? You know, that's a really good question. (laughs) 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 To be honest, it's interesting because I talk to friends of mine. I have good friends now who are, you know, partners in large firms and, and they look at all the different things I've done and the different things I do. And the thing is, I do each of those things for less time in a week, right? So my friends who are partners at large firms, they're working on a big file. They work on that same file all day, whereas I have a very kind of diverse schedule. So, you know, a couple days a week, I'm going to be doing lectures at Carleton. I'll be doing seminars. I'll be administering things. I'll be taking my own, you know, further training. Um, and then I work maybe a couple days a week as, as a per diem crown. And so I'm doing different things on different days. Uh, and so I have to be really careful about my schedule. And I find actually, you know, there's an app for that. <laughs> and I find that's really, um, it, it's all about managing my time. Um, and because I find it so interesting to do different things, I, I don't do any particular thing all the time. Do you find that, that kind of contributes in some way to your 
um, level of fulfillment with the law to be able to do so many different things and be able to commit yourself to so many different tasks as opposed to if you only took on one profession that you might almost get bored after an amount of time? Uh, how do you find that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody's different. Um, I have always done lots of different things and I like to do different things. I'm, I'm intellectually curious. I like doing different things. I also like to paint. I like to learn new things all the time and, and maybe I have ADD. It's possible. It's undiagnosed. Um, but some people like to do the same task for a long period of time. I know that when I was articling, that was what I struggled with the most. The FaceTime, not so much because I don't like people because I do like people and I didn't mind, you know, doing work a lot. It's just that the change for me between tasks is really valuable. I would find it pretty profoundly I'm gonna say soul killing to be at my desk at like 7 30 in the morning and still be at my desk at 5 30 and and we have worked on the same thing all day I would you know eat lunch or whatever but I find it so invigorating they say a change is as good as a rest and for me that's absolutely true I have tons of energy to do lots of things as long as there's change within it and actually I think that's one of the the issues that lawyers have is it is if we are working long hours and there's stats and there's research on this long hours on the same thing it's not just me and my particular you know views on the world who find that depressing it is actually energizing to change up what you're doing. And so I'm very fortunate to have sort of landed in a place where I can do different things. Yeah, I've known Professor Bromwich for three years, coming to four years now. And I mean, you've been involved in, in gymnastics as well with your kids as well. And karate, karate or taekwondo? Taekwondo. taekwondo. So I do taekwondo. I help with gymnastics. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's your experience in the courtroom and outside of the courtroom and it really, really amazes me every time that I see what, what you're doing. And when you're able to spend so much quality time with your kids and your family, that really says a lot about how you're, you've been able to master the arts of time management and organizing your schedules around. Well, it's, my kids wouldn't say that I'm good at managing my schedule. I just I just came from their science fair, actually. And, you know, there's some part of it that happens at 3.30 and everything. Anyway. I was there already and I did the thing, but, but I mean, it, it is, it is a perpetual challenge and I'm always trying to keep juggle a bunch of balls in the air. And I, I actually enjoy that. There, there's a bit of a challenge to that. That in itself is a little bit like an escape room actually, to actually try to solve the puzzle of every day. And I actually really love it when a lot of different things are happening for me. It can become overwhelming when it's too much, but I, I think taking breaks, taking vacations, and also my kids give me energy. I love my kids and I have a very supportive partner to the extent that he's, I mean, he's very emotionally supportive. He's also a very busy guy. Um, but I find that that is really helpful too, because I think uh, a negative relationship can be so draining. Now, I just want to go a little bit more specifics into like, how do you balance your, professor your professorship with your current career as a per diem crown attorney? Because I would, I would assume that there would be quite a few similarities between the two that might come in. So how do you, how do you balance that? Well, I think those two are very complementary. Um, I uh, took on the role as a per diem crown to keep myself honest, actually, because I, you know, I have a PhD in, in legal studies and my research project was on criminal law, but I hadn't been in a criminal courtroom in five years. I was working as a staff lawyer as a, at the Canadian Bar Association. And I really, if I'm doing research about the law, first of all, I want to know that I'm correct. I want to know that I'm timely. I want to know that I'm current. And my uh, ability uh, to do my research well and be relevant is so profoundly complemented by the fact that I'm in a courtroom, at least on a weekly basis, seeing how, how bail court operates, how guilty plea court operates, seeing how trials are, are happening in motions and, and things like that. So I think they're incredibly complementary. There are some potential tensions in that. Um, 
as a, a Crown Attorney, I work for the Ministry of the Attorney General, um, and it has already come up, not in a dramatic way, but um, there are some limits on what you can say when you have a, a public role. Um, I mean, you know, uh, so I have to, and, and, but at the same time, as an academic, I actually am obligated to be, you know, critiquing about critiquing things and thinking about things. So I can't comment, for example, on a course on a case before the court in Ottawa when it's before the court. So there are some limitations on that. Um, but having said that, conceptually and a bit, you know, theoretically and, and on a large level, I think it's incredibly complementary in terms from a practical perspective. What it means is that I do a lot of academic work at night. So. No different from us as law students. We right. have a lot of late nights. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> you know, that's par for the course of the profession. And I don't think I'm somebody who's grinding it out more than anybody else. I mean, I've been very fortunate in that I've had a number of different jobs where I have control. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. I work a lot of hours, but I have control over that. And I think there's, you know, there's research from the Justicia Project and elsewhere that, that having that degree of authority and autonomy and control over, you know, what obligations you take on um, and, and being able to schedule around it, I think makes a huge difference in, in a person's mental health and quality of life. And also to that, when you mentioned about being staying honest to yourself, I mean, you've also been involved in a lot of parliamentary committee meetings as well. I remember even as recent as this year, you were up at Parliament and you were also advocating certain issues with the criminal justice system and also in regards to youth criminal justice system as well. Could you speak a little bit to the issues of the youth criminal justice system as a whole? Uh, well, the, the issue that I was most recently speaking um to at federal committee hearing was a parliamentary committee hearing was on a proposal to reduce the reliance on administration of justice offenses with reference to youth. Um, and specifically, my concern about that is particularly with reference to crossover kids, so kids who've been in the child welfare system and then uh, end up getting shuttled over to the criminal justice system disproportionately. And there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, they're traumatized, they have a lot of mental health issues, but they also are in these group care settings where they're getting charged for stuff like, I have teenage kids and they hit each other. I'm not going to be calling police for an assault charge to be laid. In the context of group care, it is frequently the case that they get charges for that, and then they can accumulate administration of justice offenses if the care workers forget to bring them to court, or if they get transferred to another facility, um, they get put into another home care setting, and this happens all the time, and then they accumulate the and amass these criminal records, and that's what happened to Ashley Smith, who, um, in, in, there were many things that happened to her, but certainly the accumulation of scores of minor uh, administration of justice charges are a big part of what happened to her. So I was speaking, in, actually, in support of um, the uh, the current justice minister Jody Wilson-Raybould's uh, proposal to uh, reduce the uh, amount of administration of justice offenses being levied against youth. I mean, that is actually a great idea. They should do it. It's a timely idea. I mean, it shouldn't have been happening anyway. And you also mentioned that in your book as well. The book was looking for Ashley, what rereading what the Smith case reveals about governments of girls, mothers, and families in Canada. And you covered the Ashley case in a lot of detail. The Ashley case was a very controversial case regarding, I could, I could be getting my facts wrong, maybe a little bit, but it was about, I think one of the inmates, she was, she had, um, she had a mental illness, I believe. Was it? Or so actually, actually, please, please clarify, because yeah, my so mind is very, very rusty on this it's point. It's interesting because in a lot of media portrayals, and this is something I studied, she was portrayed as having mental health issue. And that was kind of the, the sort of characterization that uh, the popular portrayals seized upon. And I actually really critically um, unpacked and, and did, did a bit of a, an excavation of how that portrayal happened to come about because she wasn't actually uh, diagnosed with any mental health issues before she spent several years in solitary confinement. And there's 
all kinds of evidence that from a number of different disciplines that you know what you put a teenager in a in a solitary confinement cell or and you call it a quiet room you can call it anything you want that is not going to have positive ramifications to their mental health and so the characterization of her the, and, and it's opportunistic first of all for two reasons one because in a federal system where the federal government is responsible for criminal and correctional law to say well it's a mental health problem that shifts the responsibility onto the provinces right so it's very opportunistic the government at that time uh, to be saying that that's the first thing two there there should be more advocacy on the basis of mental health so it was fitting into a broader agenda that NGOs um, who are sort of uh, speaking on um, criminal justice and correctional issues had at the time but I really tried to look beneath that and and my argument was in fact that we have no clear evidence that she had a mental illness. In fact, all evidence is, is to the contrary. So I don't know. I didn't know her. She died, you know, before I, I started studying her case. But there is no clear evidence that she had mental health issues before she was held in solitary confinement for a prolonged period of time. And in fact, the best sort of witness to that is her mother, who says she did not. Um, so there is a kind of slate of hand happening with that um, in the correctional and criminal justice systems. And, and I think it's sort of, it's come back around somewhat because when uh, Minister Goodale uh, announced that he was going to abolish solitary confinement. Um, he referenced Ashley Smith's case directly. And so I think although the dominant media portrayal at the time of her death and at the time of the inquest in 2013 um, was that she had mental health issues, uh, the inquest verdict that held that it was a homicide. So and that's a really interesting finding because it was the only inquest that's ever been found in, in Canadian history where a prisoner was found to have been killed without it being another prisoner who killed her. So it was a homicide and, and you know, it is sort of like it calls out for culpability and no one has ever been held culpable in her case. And initially it, it came to attention because, you know, her death was, was captured on video and the guards didn't intervene. Um, but charges that were initially laid against them were ultimately dropped because they were under orders not to intervene. And so, the, it, it, you know, the, the rabbit hole goes very deep in terms of the level of accountability and, and the sort of what this case reveals about the functioning of the correctional system and I would argue as well the youth criminal justice system with that accumulation of all these charges because Ashley Smith went to jail for I don't know if you know but it was for throwing apples at a postal yes worker. I remember that so, yes you know and and prior to that she had stolen a CD the CD of who let the dogs out right so she she was getting in trouble and stuff at school she's you know she's 14 and she's getting in trouble and um, so she went into correctional custody and once she was in there she accumulated um, she was unruly and undisciplined and didn't behave herself and she accumulated all these other charges ended up solitary confinement and so I mean I've, I've gone off a little bit on that but there's a lot that went on in that case and, and just to just to reiterate that actually Ashley Smith um, is could be understood a number of different ways but we have no conclusive evidence that somebody um, that we should understand is primarily a mental patient I, I'm just curious um, kind of you know without without going too much down uh down the rabbit hole of discussing like particular cases, um, I'm wondering, generally speaking, if you have any thoughts on ways that ways in which the criminal justice system could be modified or should be modified to better address youth cases. Whether you see uh, potentially different systems, you know, like some restorative justice systems or systems which are designed to be more uh, more peer based, or any of those kind of modifications on the standard criminal system, which you think would be more effective than what the government is currently using. Oh, good question. I mean, first of all, I'd like to say I actually 
think there's a lot to be said in praise of the Youth Criminal Justice Act. There were a lot of, of positive um, changes that it made to youth criminal justice, uh, specifically extrajudicial measures and extrajudicial sanction, which are forms of restorative justice, diverting young people out of the criminal justice system. Statistically, we've seen a great deal of success since 2003. Prior to that, um, Canada had a very high incarceration rate of young people. The Youth Criminal Justice Act actually should be hailed as a sparkling success. Um, the problem is, and there's multiple problems, so it, there are a lot of well-intentioned people doing some pretty good work under the uh, Youth Criminal Justice Act. Um, the biggest problem I see right now in my current research is with what I talked about is crossover youth. So kids who are coming through the child welfare systems of the provinces and territories, and many of them are Indigenous kids, many more are black kids in urban centers and Nova Scotia and Toronto. Um, and those kids, when they come in to the youth criminal justice system, are not getting diverted in the same way. They are not benefiting from the extrajudicial measures, extrajudicial sanction, and they are accumulating those administration of justice offenses. They are accumulating these, these, um, these multiple charges. So I would say in order to improve the functioning of the youth criminal justice system, Intervening in the child welfare systems of the provinces and territories is a really good idea. Actually, Minister Jane Philpott, Indigenous Affairs Minister, just announced today an intention on the part of the federal government uh, to move uh, control over Indigenous child welfare to Indigenous governments. And so this is an interesting idea. I don't know what's going to play out because one of the issues is there are more Indigenous people now living in cities than are living on reserves. So what jurisdiction those Indigenous governments will have over kids who are off reserve, I don't know. Um, but certainly intervening in the provincial and territorial child welfare systems would be beneficial. Having said that, that's not something we can just easily do. I mean, there's you know 13 different governments there and there's different levels of sympathy at different times. I mean, the provincial government here in Ontario defunded the office of the child advocate last week. So, um, you know, it's difficult to sort of predict uh, a positive change, a systemic change that's reliable in that regard. Having said that, a change I would recommend um, is uh, there are different sections in the Youth Criminal Justice Act in Section 3, Section 26, and Section 146 where parents are specifically referenced. And the idea is, like, throughout that parents are intended to be involved. Now, I'm a parent. I don't think that's bad. I think that's a great idea. The problem is that the purpose of having a parent involved is to have this meaningful, supportive, practical advocate in there, right? And to have them be informed of what's, about what's going on. A lot of the time, the youth who end up before the court and end up being disproportionately sanctioned are actually these kids who have been apprehended from their parents. And so having evidentiary protection rely and hinge upon the presence of parents means that we're further disadvantaging kids um, who don't have access to that supportive parent role, um, and specifically kids who are in the child welfare system. So I think, and I've got a paper coming out about this in the Manitoba Law Journal next year, um, and I've, I've just submitted it, um, so that's why it's really fresh in my mind, um, that we should be looking critically at how we include and reference parents in the Youth Criminal Justice Act. Not to exclude them, but how can we provide or support provision of some sort of functional equivalent to those those valuable things we think parents will do? Clearly, they're, that's not available for some kids. So if the child welfare systems maybe should be providing supports, which they don't by and large, or can the federal uh, legislation perhaps make some kind of provision for that? Section 25 of the Youth Criminal Justice Act makes provision for the appointment of counsel. So if, if legal aid program does not um, 
provide a lawyer to a young person, then that section of the legislation will, um, if, if invoked by a judge. Um, and I suggest uh, in this paper that maybe we want to have uh, some sort of similar provision to appoint a practical advocate. Maybe we should have this kind of somehow formalize that role and 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 make supportive interventions available to kids. So that's our long answer, but oh, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's yeah. great. I mean, yeah, you, the Youth Criminal Justice Act was a major improvement from the Young Offenders Act, which, as Professor Bromwich led to a very high incarceration rate for for Canada. In fact, Canada had an even higher incarceration rate than the U.S. at one point as a result of the YOA, the U.S. is known to have the highest incarceration rate in the world in terms of countries. So the YCJA has made a lot of improvements, but as as we've heard earlier, Professor Bromwich has made a lot of suggestions as to what needs to be changed to make it even better than it currently is. Now, based Just on if that... if I can yep, clarify sorry? one thing. We had a higher incarceration rate for youth. For youth, so just a, I just a, I, you, you're right, but I just want to be put that little caveat there because the Americans are you. still world leaders in locking people up. Thank you, thank so you we very were, much. For we were the world leaders in locking kids up for a long time. Thank you. It's uh, not a, not a distinction we'd want to have. No, <laughs> it's not one of those lists you want to be on, right? To quote John Oliver, right? So right, right. Yeah. So for that being said, a lot has changed even in just the last couple of days in terms of criminal law and how it's progressed in terms of the youth criminal justice system, let alone the last 18 or so or 20 or so years in terms of criminal law practice. So compared to when you started out in criminal law uh, practice and compared to what lawyers our age or those who will be going into criminal law practice either this year in 2018 or the next three years or so, how much has changed and how much has stayed the same in the last 20 years? That's a really good question. I recently uh, worked on uh, an update to our, I have a criminal law and theory textbook with my colleague Ron Saunders. And so we put, just put together the fifth edition in 2016. And the fourth edition had come out in, in 2001, which is when I graduated law school. So it was this really cool opportunity for me to revisit what the criminal law was like when I first started being a lawyer and what it was like in 2016. Um, and I would say there has been a lot of incremental change and sort of, um, tweaking of a variety of different aspects of, of criminal law. Overall, it's pretty similar, actually. Um, you know, there hasn't been a massive ideological systematic change. And certainly what the Law Reform Commission advocated in the late 20th century was to have a systematic overhaul in a comprehensive way of the criminal code. I, I recommend that every single time I appear before a parliamentary committee, it's like, let's do this in a systematic way. Um, and uh, that's not happening. There, there is this tinkering going on. We don't have a law commission funded federally. We do provincially, but not federally. Although I suspect that law commission, the Ontario one, is, is probably it, it's at risk in the current regime as well. Um, if, but um, there have been a lot of, of minor changes. I mean, one to, to for example, provocation. Um, in uh, 2009, provocation was, it's a defense, so just to backtrack in case people don't know, it's a defense only to murder. Um, it can reduce a murder charge to manslaughter in certain circumstances if somebody is on the sudden provoked into, into acting. Um, and Australia abolished it in 2009 as a defense. Um, and there's been a, there was a lot of, there were a lot of calls um, to do that in Canada as well because there's this sort of very kind of uh, misogynist and patriarchal kind of basis for when has, when has 
has provocation been accepted and when has it not? And what is the threat? And it really has been, the way, when it's been accepted in the past historically has been, if it's a threat to your masculinity, you can kill someone and we understand, right? It's an acceptance of human frailty. And so the idea is like, do we really, in the 21st century, do we really, is that really something someone should be killed for? If they threaten your masculinity, is that really, is that a thing? Um, so abolition in, uh, um, in uh, New Zealand, but, um, in Canada that wasn't abolished, but there was a case subsequently where the Supreme Court narrowed the defense of provocation to be so narrow um, that it, it that it is almost um, never going to apply, almost never going to apply. Like in, And it was a case in which it was sort of a paradigmatic circumstance where historically it would have applied. It was a man caught his wife in bed with another man. That is the historical, you know, that is this sort of archetypal case of when provocation could have been used historically. He was not able to use provocation. And in Obiter, uh, the Supreme Court really made clear that this is not the kind of circumstance where you can use provocation anymore. So it leaves open the question of like, when on earth could you use it? So there have been a number of changes to offenses and defenses. There's been a lot of sort of tinkering with various provisions, but we have not seen a sort of grand change in the criminal code. Even if you look at the sexual assault provisions, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of the big changes in law reform there, those came before that, right? And so we're kind of working through um, some of the changes that, you know, were largely made in the latter half of the 20th century. So a lot of things have changed. You can get my book if you want to know. <laughs> but, um, but, but a lot of things haven't changed. And they haven't changed in a sort of rationalized, systematic way. Um, I'm just wondering why... I mean, if things, if things have or, or indeed have not changed, why you think it is that Parliament in particular is so unwilling to go through and, and systematically uh, you know, update things? Like why, why has that not taken place? I mean, the fact that yeah. we keep saying it should would seem to indicate to me that, that maybe, hey, we should update it. And the fact that the Supreme Court keeps kind of giving directions to Parliament to, hey, change this thing, update this mm -hmm. thing. And sometimes they'll tweak a few wordings or sometimes they'll throw yet another subsection into a bit of the criminal code. But why hasn't there been that kind of major push? Is it simply bureaucracy or, or what, what would justify that? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I wouldn't, I would say it is not bureaucracy because it is the political will that's lacking. I think the bureaucrats, we have the best public service in the world. I'm sure they could do it. Um, it was, the Law Commission was defunded by the Harper Tories in, in the, you know, the early years of, in the, in the early oddies, like the, the, the start of the, the, this century um, and uh, the, the whole notion that government should sort of fund its critique is not something that it's something that um, right-leaning governments that like smaller government often don't want to fund their own critique. So I think that that's pretty, I, I'm not even going to criticize them for that. That's consistent with what they do is it, they, they decrease the size of government. Um, I think the political will is just not there to systematically overhaul the criminal code. And I got a new window onto that at the times that I have appeared before parliamentary committee, because there's one, for example, there was a provision that I was, it was very hotly contested. I was at a parliamentary hearing about this and it was about whether um, we should have a specific provision for interrupting a sacred service or religious service. And I said, we don't need that. I mean, we have other provisions for mischief and creating a disturbance. There's no need for this particular criminal provision. And the proposal, it's still before Parliament hasn't uh, finally passed through, but there was so much popular resistance on the part of religious leaders and religious people to that, even though it wasn't like legally correct. And I was making these arguments 
that didn't really resonate with what was going on in the political process of of criminal lawmaking, you know, because I said, you know, we don't need that. Like, we can lay this charge and that charge, and this is just, this is redundant. In the interests of streamlining the criminal code and making the criminal code more rational, this, yes, get rid of these, um, you know, zombie laws and also these archaic provisions that are just redundant, they don't need to exist. And, uh, and it was interesting because it, it really, that argument had very little traction. I mean, there were certain people on the committee who were lawyers who thought, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But a lot of the people there, the lawmakers are not lawyers. They're accountable to their constituents. The constituents have, you know, they don't necessarily understand what's going on and they have an emotional response and it's a political process, right? So what's lacking, I think, really is the political will and also the project of, um, of, um, restructuring and revisiting the criminal code would take longer than an election cycle. I just don't think it's something that is politically resonant. Um, and I, so I, you know, I'll continue suggesting it, but I, I don't see, I, I understand why politicians don't want to do it. it. It is not politically popular. We don't have the kind of groundswell of popular support for, hey, why don't you philosophically and logically rationalize these provisions? I mean, just, people don't, you know, march down the street about that. You'll just get uh, all the votes from all the lawyers, I imagine, would be uh, that would be the only group yeah. that it would be popular with. It would be, yeah, that's right. There would be lawyers who think, yes, that makes sense, and uh, virtually no one else would care. So, yeah. That's about right. So, in that sense, for lawyers or future lawyers such as myself and Ryan, as we head into the legal legal workforce, what are some ways for us who are going into criminal law, or not even necessarily just criminal law practice, just legal practice in general? What are some of the ways that what that we could do? What are some of the ways that we should do to get the public talking, intelligently talking about what what you discussed about the different changes in criminal law and how there is there are many things that need changing? How, how do we? What are some of the best ways that we can do that? Well, I think you know it's interesting because I worked as a law reform lawyer for six years with the Canadian Bar Association, and now I'm on the diversity committee of the. Carlton County Law Association and and in my academic work I'm always interested in that question like how do you affect change how do you be a part of change how do lawyers support change and I think um, you have to fight the battle on many fronts um, so I think theorizing is important big picture thinking is important but I think interventions really have to be local and um, I think if lawyers young lawyers do some pro bono work do some frontline work um, you won't necessarily be doing it in your practice. I mean, many people will go an article in a large firm like I did, and it was a great experience. Um, but in in your kind of life as a lawyer, um, feel like it is your job to, you know, to do pro bono work, to serve the public. We are more than just a business, and um, and that doesn't mean you you know you should work yourself to death doing unpaid work. But but understand and and continue to be somewhat idealistic about the fact that you are serving justice and you're doing more than just business. This is not a business degree. Um, business is important to what we do, and businesses need law. But um, to stay engaged with the idea that uh, as much as you pay for your education. Um, there's public funding that goes to the legal profession in Canada that goes to legal education and to really sort of you know feel connected to the idea that social justice is the part of any lawyer's work and that's important and that also speaks to your experience as well I mean you've gone out of your way you've gone I would even say up and above the call of duty in order to bring attention to all these different issues in terms of the criminal law and also in terms of your of all the other types of law also being involved in interrelating with this as well. 
So this may sound like a very generic kind of a kind of kind of a question here, but I still think it's pretty important for us to uh, to ask this. And it's in general, what advice would you give to current law students and articling students about approaching the law practice not in a business sense, but also in a justice sense? What advice would you give to well, us? First of all, thank you for your kind words about, you know, my awesomeness. It's so nice to hear that. I was saying before that we started recording that, you know, I live with four teenage children and a husband who's very busy. So this is a lot of niceness shining my way. So I'm just unaccustomed, but keep it going. Uh, it's fine. Um, I, I would say in terms of what would I say to articling students and young lawyers, it is a tough business out there. And, and so first of all, I do want to say I am not allergic to money as a law student with high levels of debt. You should not be allergic to money. It is okay for you to claim your place. Poverty simply sucks. There's no reason for us to, you know, feel ennobled by poverty. So it is okay to claim your space. And this is a private industry by and large. Um, it is okay to bill for your work. I mean, contributing pro bono to the extent that you can afford it is fine, but law is no longer the kind of privileged position that, that you know, it is for everybody. And there are a lot of lawyers who are actually not making that much money. So I would say, do look after yourself. And, and it is a, a profession that can be kind of vicious. And so you have to look after yourself and, and find support networks. Um, find people you can trust and rely on. Be true to what you really want to do. There's a tremendous gravitational pull in this profession, and I have felt it myself, and I have gone into it more than once, where, you know, big law has sort of, I've been invited in, and I'm grateful, and I have some really good friends who work in big law, and, and there's been some real opportunities that I've taken up there, but I have left more than once. Um, and so that's because I, uh, I feel a kind of calling to do work that I think is meaningful and valuable. And so I think it's okay and important and you need to actually follow that call. Like what it, what you're, you, what you really want to do. And that doesn't mean it won't suck. It doesn't mean that you won't have days where you're just tired. And it doesn't mean that it, it can't be depressing. I mean, I really like the work I do, but it doesn't super make me happy to, you know, be sitting in on a child pornography case and have to read the file. I mean, I don't enjoy that one bit, but I do feel like it's important work that needs to be done. Um, so I would say you do, I think we, I don't, you know, lawyers don't like to be super hokey, right? But at the same time, it's important to, to, to believe that you can make a difference that because laws do change, social change does happen. And a lot of the important social changes that have happened in the last century have been really supported by the work of lawyers and you know, to, to continue to be inspired about the value of the work you're doing. And, but uh, again, it, it is okay to want to make money doing it. Um, you spoke there a little bit about how you know it's important to to believe in what you're doing and to, to find that kind of fulfillment in, in the work that you're doing, but how sometimes things are still just going to suck. You're going to have days that are just rough or, or weeks or you know periods of time that's just going to be hard. Um, I want to kind of bring that down to some of our audience who are going through law school at the moment mm -hmm. and uh, you know this being recorded in November coming up on exams and a good portion of their life in the next few weeks is going to suck and just be you know a little bit a little bit rough um, and it's one thing to say you know well they're training to be lawyers and hopefully they can have some idea of you know that I'm working towards a greater good and I'm going to be able to do something great with my life once I've eventually graduated law school in one year two years three years you know however long it takes um, but do you have any tips for how either lawyers or in particular law students, maybe tips you used when you were in law school, um, 
can get through those those rough times, those periods where they find perhaps even their commitment waning a little in the face of, of such challenges? You know, that's a, that's a really good and difficult question. I mean, on the one hand, um, one way to answer that partially is to, I read this interesting um, book that talked about happiness not being an objective, but being, an, being a byproduct. So when do you feel most happy? When do you feel most fulfilled? I mean, I feel very fulfilled by work that I think is serving a purpose. So I really always liked being a student because I felt like I was moving somewhere, going somewhere, and, and I, I sort of had my eyes on a goal. And I felt even though I was tired and even though the work was hard, the fact that I was moving towards that goal and that there was hope was actually fulfilling for me. Having said that, there is a, and I've written about this, there's a very strong correlation between long working hours and depression. There's a lot, you know, of contextual reasons why people start to feel sad, and particularly in Canada, it's dark and snowy and all this. So I do think really aggressive self-care is important. So get some rest. And again, going back to what I said earlier, what works for me is mixing it up. It's interesting because people are like, well, how do you do it with having four kids? Well, actually, my life is completely, you know, there's a 180. All the focus is taken off whatever was stressing me out. And I'm focused completely on, you know, what's going on for them, what's happening in their lives. And that pulls me out of myself in terms of like what my narratives, what I'm thinking through, what I'm working on. And to, so I think it's really important to take a break. And I have always been someone, even though I studied hard, who took a break. So take a break, have recreation. When you are, um, when you are studying and when you are working, it's important to be focused and be disciplined, but that doesn't mean you defer your life for a period of years and you don't just study around the clock. That's actually not even effective. It's effective to take breaks. You are better when you take breaks. And I always found, and I still find that if I if I do some work, if I think about it, and then I, you know, I, this morning I did a spin class and I was like, oh, ideas were coming together, you know, like it was all working out. Um, and, and I find my best thinking happens sometimes away from the book, away from the laptop. Maybe some people find their best thinking happens in the shower. I find my best thinking happens when I'm physically active. Um, and so, we were talking before we started recording about how I studied anthropology in my uh, undergrad, and, and you know, really, the, the you know the the big secret you learn there is that humans are apes, and so you got to <laughs> you, you have to understand the the kind of the animal piece of you needs to not just sit and stare at a, a computer screen. Like you have to be good to yourself in acknowledging that you live in your body. You know, so yeah. yeah I mean, I, I'm glad that you that you brought up that. Uh that degree in anthropology because I mean you can sort of see the connection but a lot of people are coming to law school from you know not the politics or philosophy background but from a wide variety of backgrounds that at first glance may have very little kind of connection to the law. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious at that point in your undergraduate degree what at what point was it that you thought oh you know hey law seems like the next logical step here that I'm going to go from from social and cultural anthropology into a study of the legal system and then a master's and a doctorate in the legal system I mean where where was that connection for you Well there's a couple things one thing is there actually is legal in legal anthropology so I was reading Foucault and 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 history and power in the study of law and looking at how law is part of a like the social functioning of human society and so there there is kind of anthropology about law and so one of my initial thoughts is I'll go into law and I'll just be watching them 
you know, it'll be participant observation and I will learn so much about legal culture. And part of me sometimes benefits from that, that perspective difference. Having said that, when I was a kid, when I was like nine or 10, I kind of wanted to be a lawyer. I, I sort of had this, you know, background kind of idea in my head, but the precipitating event of me going to law school was I was dating this guy. And again, this is, you know, 1996, right? So back in the day, right? This would of I was course never... 19, I was born in 1996, so <laughs> it wasn't that long this ago. This is when you were born, okay? It wasn't that long ago. And this was, you know, the kind of thing that was not really socially acceptable then. But I was dating this guy, and he's like, oh, well, you wouldn't make a good lawyer. You're too much of a girl. You're too, you know. And I'm like, dude? You know, because it's 1996, I said dude to myself. Um, and I was so mad. I'm like, you have no idea what kind of hell you've just unleashed. And so I found the phone number, because this is before the internet really became ubiquitous. Um, I found the phone number of the LSAT people. Like then, right then. Wow. And I phoned them, and it was from a payphone in Mac Hall at University of Calgary campus in the, in the food court. I phoned them from a payphone. I had just like left the table and like... And I phoned them, I said, can I write the LSAT? And they're like, you know what? This is the last day for you to register to write this one. And I'm like, I'm writing this LSAT. And I gave them my credit card number over the phone. I went and I wrote it. And I was like wildly unprepared. This is the arrogance of youth. Completely not, you know, whatever. And I, so I, I got through the reading comprehension. No problem, no problem. I mean, it was, it was an area of strength for me. It was good. And then the game section came up. And I'm like, I think people prepare for this. Like, I think this is a thing. I think this is, you know, and so I, I just remember going to the bathroom after that portion because they gave you a break, and I was like, are they just doing this to mess with us? Like, are, is this just, like, is this the psychological test? They give you, like, these ridiculous questions yes, that, yes, like, make no yes. sense. They're just like, are they testing my resilience? And I'm like, yeah, well, that's why I'm here. And so I went back in. Anyway, I did really well on my outside. <laughs> I always tell students that, um, that, you know, don't do that. Like, that was, <laughs> like, cause the thing is, why not make it easy for yourself? It's so much easier if you know what's going to happen to you. You're like, cause I'm like, what is this? You know, what has happened? Why is this happening to me? What are these questions? I didn't know. And, um, but if you prepare for those questions and it's particularly if you take philosophy, um, the I tell my students the biggest predictor of success on the LSAT is actually having taken um, log, formal logic. And my sister, you know, she took the LSAT. She did a philosophy undergrad to take formal logic. She just like knocked that out of the park. <laughs> so, you know, all these LSAT prep courses, um, that's, you know, they can be helpful, but really take a course in formal logic. I mean, I'm talking to people who are already in law school, but I tell undergrads this all the time. So anyway, that's how I, I ended up. Um, so then I ended up getting, like, I did well enough on my LSAT. I was just very fortunate. Um, it happened to be a fit for me. I'm not good at some things. I have learned this, but that was something I was okay. I could play, you know? Um, and so I got these, you know, recruitment brochures from various places. And uh, one was like the Florida Coastal School of Law. Did you guys get that one? They, they sent, they used to send like these neon brochures to everybody, please come. And so obviously I didn't go there, but I, I did get a call from the University of Toronto Law School and they were going to give me a scholarship. And I went to their little, they had a recruitment day and I was, I chickened out because I was like going to be so far from home. So anyway, I started law school at University of Calgary and that was okay. And then I, you know, and I blame love and I came to Queens with my husband and, uh, and so my whole career has been kind of this balance between the sort of rejection of female stereotypes and then the kind of willing kind of um, engagement in female roles because I'm a mom and I'm a wife and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I live a very kind of, um, I don't want to say June Cleaver, but I live a very kind of like suburban wife, woman, mother life. So, yeah. But a superhero in disguise as That's well. Right. I just bought myself a Wonder Woman hat. I can't 
wait till it arrives. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we conclude, do you have anything else to, to ask Ryan? Um, I was a little curious about something, which was that, uh, I mean, when I first heard, um, you know, for, the, for the listeners at home, Amos was the one who, who proposed this, um, because obviously uh, Professor Bromwich, he, he knows you from, yeah. from previously. Well, I ah, well. A long time ago when he was a young undergrad and an exceptional one at that. Oh, thank you for the kind words, Professor. <laughs> well, the, the thing that, that struck me about um, his proposal was that um, in the title he mentions two sides, one ace attorney. Um, I'm curious, as someone who's seen both the, the criminal defense side uh, and also the prosecution side, I, I have two questions. Firstly, what was it for you, the moment at which you decided that you wanted to, to change out of the defense side moved to prosecution. And secondly, for those of us in law school and trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives, what do you think was perhaps the biggest myth that you'd heard about each side and how would you kind of, how would you, how would you describe criminal defense or, or prosecution to someone who's a little concerned that maybe it, it you know, isn't interesting to them for some reason that they've, they've heard about in the course of their law school career from fellow students who've just complained at length about their criminal law classes? Well, those sort of two really interesting aspects of that question. First of all, just with respect to my own experience, like what made me decide to go from defense work into crown work? Um, that was not an ideological decision for me. I like working with criminal law and criminal concepts. Um, and an opportunity came up to work with the Crown uh, Attorney's Office on a per diem basis, which enabled me to work part-time. Um, so I really like working with the ideas. I like uh, the subject matter. I'm not in a position to sort of take on clients and, and launch a practice. As a defense lawyer, you really have to be in business and you have to be available all the time. It's a, it's a very, it's a, it's pretty grueling. And so I had initially, when I left private practice to go work at the CBA and do my PhD, it was when I had four young children. I, I left private practice as many women do at that time when they, um, you know, the timing just was, it was that perfect storm of, you know, childbearing and, and, and uh, long work hours and things like that. And how could I, my issue was how do I stay involved with the law and the, with the law that I really care about doing. Um, and so it was just a different facet of it. So when I, you know, started doing crown work um, it, it really was not so much an ideological choice as it was uh, more a practical choice for myself and I think that that maybe ties into the second part of your question which is you know what's the biggest myth and I think my experience has been that that it really is uh, a myth that defense and crown are really opposed in a fundamental way I mean the, the defense bar at least in Ottawa it's a very collegial bar the defense bar and and the prosecution actually are people who get along really well with each other and and we understand each other we know that we're doing jobs we're not you know it's not this acrimonious um, thing where defense counsel and and crown attorneys don't get along and don't understand each other we know that we're doing a job and fundamentally the other the other methods that we we are so divergent in what our duties are I mean of course the defense counsel has a duty to their client but they're also an officer of the court uh, under the law society rules and uh, and otherwise I mean they they actually are profoundly assistive to the court um, and so at the end of the day I mean my husband does surgery and I think a courtroom is actually much more like a surgical you know suite than than people think I mean we are 
all performing functions to try to get a process to happen. Um, and so I think certainly at least in the Canadian context, I've worked as a, in private practice in London, Ontario, and in Toronto somewhat, and here in Ottawa, I have found it to be a myth that, that the defense bar and the crowns are, are like opposed to each other or that we're fundamentally sort of at odds because we're really not. Um, another myth is, you know, you see it on TV and you see it um, that, that any particular case is really the focus because you work on so many cases and you want to get it right and you want to do a good job and some of them sit with you longer than others. Um, but at the end of the day, your duty is to your practice, is to the practice of law, is to the court, is to the administration of justice. And so it's another myth that the particular case is really such a focus. One other myth, just to, to answer, I'm answering with three, Please, three yeah. answers, but and one other myth is the idea that you know, crowns are seeking convictions because we're not right. Most of what we do, like we're, we have a quasi judicial role um, and we're just trying to deal with the situation in a way that will be effective and makes the most sense and is fair. And so there is no kind of space on a wall with tally marks or something about the number of convictions. I mean, you see, I, I remember this movie, The Devil's Advocate. I don't know if you remember that in terms of, anyway, it's Keanu Reeves. It's always good with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> but, but the idea was like he was racking up wins in, in the law and nobody really looks at it that way. That isn't how it's, it's dealt with at all. Um, and so I would say there's lots of myths about the practice of criminal law and there's lots of myths about the practice of law, but certainly as a lawyer, you're really a professional and your day-to-day -day experiences with so many cases kind of whirling around each other, unless you're actively in trial at that particular time, you're dealing with a lot of different things. Well, a professional indeed, and also a superhero of an academic that we've had today on the show here. Professor, thank you so very much for coming on to the show. It's been certainly a very enlightening experience. Uh, Ryan and I have, have learned a lot, certainly. Absolutely. And I hope you guys at home, everyone, ladies and gentlemen at home and wherever you're listening to, the, the law school listeners, I hope you have also learned a lot from today's interview. You can also read more on Professor Bromwich's biography and everything and everything that she has done thus far on carlton.ca slash law slash people slash Bromwich hyphen Rebecca. And also be able to pick up her most recent book. It is Mothers, Mothering in Sport, Experiences, Representations, Resistances. Once again, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And we'll conclude this edition of the Law School Show, the person behind the resume. I'm Amos Vang. And I'm Ryan Pistorius. Until next time, farewell. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds. <laughs>